What's going on, everybody? And welcome back. Finally, welcome back to the From Downtown podcast. It's been, what, two or three weeks since I've last put an episode out. It's been rough. My laptop broke on the way to Washington, D.C., where I'm at for my new house, D.C. program this semester. I've been laptopless for two weeks, three weeks, and it was rough. Not just not being able to do the podcast, but having to send emails on my phone, do school assignments on my phone. It's, it's, it sucked. I'm not going to lie. But, yeah, the laptop, going to get this podcast started, ready to rock and roll. Today, we are continuing the What's Next series. And quite frankly, I'm very excited that we are getting to this team so soon. The Boston Celtics, a team that is poised to be one of the best teams in NBA after a trip to the NBA Finals. Will the Seas make it back to the mountaintop and bring the Larry O'Brien Trophy back to Beantown? Or will they take a step back from the second half of the season's surge they had last year? Find out my thoughts on that and more coming up next. So let's get started. Like last time, we're going to start off with the team overview of the Boston Celtics. So Boston last year, they had a record of 51-31, and which was second in the Eastern Conference. That was a 15-game improvement from the prior year, but the turnaround wasn't so apparent until post-All-Star break. They were just hovering around 500. Um, I remember specifically, it was a game against the Knicks at home. I remember it because I was watching, oh, excuse me, at the Garden, and I was watching it with my brother, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they were doing their thing, but Evan Fournier was looking like the second coming of Ray Allen. I mean, he could not miss. That game was tough to watch. Then the Knicks eventually won off. I believe it was a banked-in three by R.J. Barrett to seal the deal, and that really was the turnaround point for the Celtics at that point when they were like, all right. We, we got to stop it. Like, we're better than this. Defensively, we're not playing at our highest potential. Offensively, it's very much a my turn, your turn with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, which they are two spectacular offensive talents, okay? There's no doubt about that. But you can't win like that in the NBA, especially with the talents you guys have around, um, the Celtics have around them. Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year, which we'll get into, he has moments where he can be a great point, a great facilitator for the team. Al Horford, the savvy veteran that he is. Rob Williams, Time Lord, uh, Grant Williams. There's a bunch of guys on this roster that we'll get into as we go on in the podcast that are able to contribute on the offensive end. It doesn't have to be just, oh, post up Jason Tatum or isolate Jalen Brown on the wing. Like, Yes, these guys can average 25 points in their sleep, but it's a team effort, and that's what happened in that locker room, from what I understand. These guys got it together and decided to go on that crazy hot streak in the second half of the season. That second half run ended in a finals trip, which eventually they did lose to in six games to the Golden State Warriors. So let's look at the team stats. Points per game, 111.8, which was 12th best in the NBA. 
opponents points per game this is important 104.5 that was the best in the nba their defense was a calling card especially in that second half of the season and going into the playoffs and that stat right there tells you all you need to know they were holding some of the premier scores in the nba and teams letting them like shutting them down essentially this is what happened offensive rating 114.4 seven best in the nba again you have two top 10 guys in terms of scoring jason tatum jalen brown guys who can get it done on the offensive end that's gonna reward you with seventh best for sure defensive rating 106.9 Second best in the NBA. Again, their defense was great. We'll get more into that as we go along. The net rating, plus 7.5. Second best in the NBA. That margin of victory, man. Their defense won them games. Yes, we know that they could score, but their defense shut them down. They were historically great, as a matter of fact, with the road point differentials in the regular season which is 7.59. So for what, for those who might not know what that means exactly, they won by a margin of 7.59 during their games. So what that means is, one, their offense was clicking at times. There were times where they got wide-open shots. They were able to score with the two Js. And their defense, their defense was what shored up a lot of their victories, holding opponents to low Low 100s, maybe 110s at the most, but they were always able to outscore their opponent by around a margin of 7.59, which is sixth best in NBA history and only behind some historic teams, such as the Boston Celtics of 2008, the Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Coach by Doc Rivers, Rajon Rondo, that Celtics team. The 07 Spurs, who went to the championship and won against LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the 1972 Los Angeles Lakers. Those are all teams that won the championship last year. Which is quite frankly why I felt so optimistic about the Celtics winning it all. For a team to truly be title contenders, I think that they need to go on the road and get wins. As that is especially crucial come postseason time. And we saw up until the finals, they were doing a great job getting road wins when they needed it the most. This Celtics team's calling card was on the defensive end. There is no question about that. They went 33-9 their last 42 games, and their stout defensive ability was the reason for it. During that stretch, the Celtics held their opponents to 104.6 points per game, which is just a tenth of a point higher than their season average. In other words, that second half of the season showed the Celtics playing at their absolute best on the defensive end. Their ability to switch almost any matchup defensively gave opposing teams nightmares. The starting five of Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, and Rob Williams. Damn, that's a mouthful. (laughs) They had no weak links, right? Smart was the smallest player in that group at 6'4", but he's a defensive pit bull, a defensive anchor for that team, and as a result, he was rewarded with the Defensive Player of the Year. Well-deserved award. You add that with two long, lanky wings and Jalen Brown, who's about 6'7", and Jason Tatum, who was listed at 6'8", but has rumored has been rumored to be as close to the 6'10", that's a scary front line to deal with. That's not even taking into account the savvy vet Al Horford, who can switch out onto guards and mirror their movements with his quick 
hip swivels and foot movements before forcing them into a missed shot or even blocking the shot altogether. Then there's Rob Williams, a.k.a. the Time Lord, who might be the best shot-blocking center that isn't named Rudy Gobert. And Williams is about 6'9", right? He's not like a 7-footer. He's not 7'1", like Rudy Gobert is. He doesn't have quite the wingspan, but the athleticism is through the charts. Off the bench came Grant Williams, who gave it his all on defensive end. And even though he's only 6'6", he went up against taller forwards often. Guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo, he was able to draw offensive fouls and things of that nature. And that's a testament to his stocky frame and defensive IQ, which helped him win a lot of those matchups time and time again. The midseason addition of Derek White also came into play as well, with his length out on the perimeter as a defender. The team's identity was their defense, and that's something that Brad Stevens-era Celtics prided themselves on, and now Coach Ime Udoko relit that fire underneath his guys once more. During the season, the Celtics' offensive rating was within the top 10, and that was in large part to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. We'll get into the tandem in greater depth in a bit, but them averaging over 50 points combined is a large reason for their team's offensive potency. When Boston was at their best, they're moving the ball on offense and not just standing still. And years prior, like I mentioned before, there was a lot of your your turn, my turn, a lot of iso ball between the Jays. Obviously, when you have two great offensive talents who can get their own shot, you'd want them to attack from time to time. But that type of offense really got predictable down the stretch and allowed defenses to hone in on those two solely, rather than the opposing team having to worry about all five guys on the court. Coach Udoka has done a great job with implementing a lot of off-ball screen movement to free up either Brown or Tatum and letting them come off a pin down and make a decision. One play that Boston routinely ran after timeouts was a play that had a guard at the top of the key with the ball and either Brown or Tatum in the corner. From there, a big would set a down screen for the forward and they would curl to the elbow to catch the ball. At that point, the Jays can either pull up for a jump shot, attack the basket, find the big that's rolling to the basket off the screen, or kick it to an open shooter on the perimeter. That's just one of the many sets that first-year head coach Ime Udoka has implemented into the Boston Celtics system that made them way more formidable than the iso ball that they reverted to in past seasons. Their one flaw in offense, especially, especially during the postseason in the finals, was turnovers. They had way too many unforced errors. And to be quite honest, that turnover issue, it cost them a title. It cost them a title. I'm a firm believer that without those turnovers, the Boston Celtics are the reigning NBA champions. In the deciding game six, the team had a staggering 22 turnovers. And against a team as poisoned and veteran as the Golden State Warriors were, those errors are unacceptable. The Warriors were able to turn defense to offense time and time again, and those miscues by the Seas turned into scoring opportunities for the Dubs. Without a doubt, that is the number one thing that the Celtics will need to improve on going into the upcoming season. But now, let's step away from the team overall aspect, and let's get into the two stars of this team, the two Jays. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, or as I call them, the Jays, are two of the top young forwards in all of basketball and are an all-NBA type of talent when they are rolling. Many of the one-two punches in the league can be considered Batman to Robin comparison, not in Boston. I liken these two more closer to Batman and Superman. Take your pick as to who's who. Let's start with Tatum, who in my opinion is just on the cusp 
of being a top five player in the NBA. He is that special and great of a talent. This past season, he averaged around 27 points per game, eight boards, and four assists with multiple scoring outbursts of 40-plus and even a few 50-plus point performances. Dude can straight up put the ball in the basket. There's no question about that. There are two things that separates him from me and puts him in that special tier of top players in the game. One is his ability to defend at a high level. He's listed at 6'8", but I've heard he's closer to 6'9", 6'10", plus a near 7-foot wingspan. He's a defensive monster. Tatum has all the tools defensively to lock down the team's best offensive player night in and night out, and that has to account for something. Secondly, he's a player that constantly rises to the occasion and gets up for the big matchups. Ever since his rookie year when he went up against LeBron James in the Eastern Conference Finals and put his skills onto display, we've consistently seen Tatum step up in the big moments. Now, I know that many people probably disagree with that last statement due to his performance in these past finals. I get it. He was not that dude. He was not him. Like, there's, there's no way around it, even though I love Tatum. I'm a big Tatum fan. Tatum, he came out and said in an interview with the amazing Taylor Rooks of Bleacher Report that he had a wrist fracture for the last two months of the postseason, and it really started to take its toll in the latter, latter series versus the Heat and the Warriors. Now, some people might not like the fact that, oh, he's saying that now is quote-unquote an excuse. But, I mean, there, there's some validity to it. There's some truth, right? He, he was showing his all-NBA potential. And, yeah, it could also just be fatigue. He's never went that deep in the postseason before. Like, June, basketball is a different animal. Everybody's tired. Everybody's knick-knacked up with injuries. So, maybe we can give that a, a reason why he didn't perform at the highest level that we expected him to. However, at the end of the day, you got to perform. And this will be a learning experience for him. But we've seen what Tatum has done in big moments against other stars. A key moment in the series, or in the season rather, was against Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. The two forwards went toe-to-toe and gave fans a spectacle of a game to watch. Kevin Durant dropped 37 points, but Tatum ended the game with a season-high 54 points and the win. Another moment was Game 6 in the Milwaukee series, which was an elimination game for Boston. Tatum dropped a crucial 45 points to force a Game 7, which obviously they also won. We've seen moments against Giannis, Trey Young, John Morant, LeBron James, and many other of the NBA's top talents. Tatum has routinely shown that he has the ability to outperform other stars in this league, and as a result, Jason Tatum has entered the realm of superstardom. And with more playoff success seemingly inevitable, he can one day be considered the best player in the NBA. Jalen Brown is the second half of this duo, and he can be just as lethal as Tatum at times on the offensive end. This past season, he averaged around 24 points per game, 6 rebounds, and close to 4 assists. Those are all-star, if not all-NBA-type numbers, and he's the second option on the Celtics, right? I'm sure many people could imagine Brown being the number one option on his own team, and he'd be getting those similar accolades that Tatum has been getting, like the all-NBAs and whatnot. But what makes Brown so great is his intangibles. He's an unselfish leader, leader who has never been afraid to speak his mind. While Jason has been known to be the quiet type of leader, Brown is constantly outspoken. A lot of his game, too, can be quite loud compared to Tatum's. While Tatum is more of a smooth scorer who prefers the perimeter often, Brown has had many, many moments where he'll just do a move, put his head down, and dunk on anybody in his way. 
he kind of has a mean streak to him on the court. I think that's an interesting dynamic to have with Tatum's calm and laid-back demeanor. Defensively, he's just as impactful as Tatum, too. There aren't too many parents in the league that fit quite as well as the Jays. They've done great things already in this league, and the arrow is only pointing upwards in terms of what they can accomplish together. All right, next up, I think it's only fair to talk about the Defensive Player of the Year and the heart and soul of the Boston Celtics. That is Marcus Smart. While Smart averaged a solid 12 points per game, 6 assists, 4 rebounds, and 2 steals, his impact goes far beyond the stat sheet. He is the Celtics' emotional leader and has no problem with being loud and vocal with his teammates and the media as well. As I mentioned earlier, Tatum come, comes off as more of the quiet superstar, and Brown, while he can be vocal from time to time, isn't on the same level as Smart, right? In a lot of ways, Smart is very similar to Draymond Green in my opinion. They both have historically been the top defensive guys in the league, despite being smaller than typical DPOY winners, which are usually seven-footers, bigs, people like that. The two also facilitate a lot of their team's offense. Most importantly, both players know exactly how to elicit a reaction, whether it be from their teammates or the opposition. Smart is a guy that you love to have on your team and you hate to play against. Defensively, he'll make you work for every minute that you're out on the floor with him. Offensively as well, when he's on from three, which he has been for most part of the Celtics season post-January, right? he adds a new dimension to that Boston offense. He also has a real knack for playmaking, which a lot of people questioned when he was promoted to full-time point guard. While he certainly can have a flair for the dramatic with some of his passes, he's definitely improved in that area over the years and is a key component to the Boston core. He may not be an all-star to the Celtics, He's their MVP, without a doubt. Fortunately for Boston, even if their DPOY would have to sit for an extended period of time due to injury, they have another Defensive Player of the Year candidate playing center for them. Robert Williams III is a straight-up problem in the paint and is one of the best rim protections in the NBA. He's an explosive athlete that can be seen time and time again with just how fast he gets off the ground to sky for a block or to challenge a shot. Despite him averaging almost two a game, if you've watched the Celtics throughout the season, it feels like he's had so many timely stuff at the rim that maybe it should be closer to three or four a game. Williams can also guard in space on the perimeter due to his quick feet for a big, and even if he were to get beat off the dribble, he has the athleticism to recover for a big chase down block. Offensively, he's a Celtics lob threat at the rim, and it was clear when he missed time in the playoffs, they sorely missed that vertical attack that Rob provided. This coming season, I see a big season for him. All-NBA defensive team for sure, and he will certainly be right in the mix for DPOY. Let's stick with the bigs for a moment and go to Al Horford, the savvy vet who, it's kind of crazy to say, is going into his 16th season this year. Despite that, he's proven to be a consummate pro wherever he has gone and has improved his three-point shot to a point where if he's open, there's a good feeling that it's dropping. His highest percentage was 43% back in 2017-2018. And if he can even get close to 40% this season, he'll continue to age gracefully in an NBA that athleticism, once it starts to decline, you're looking on your way out unless you can find a way to contribute in other ways. Al Horford does that. And even without the three ball, he's still a solid interior defender who made some really big defensive stops in the Celtics run to the finals last year. Time is certainly ticking for Big Al. I honestly wouldn't be shocked if this is his last season in the NBA coming up. 
the last traditional big on the C's roster is Luke Cornett. At 7'2", he certainly has a size that other bigs on the roster lack. Outside of that, however, he's mostly an under-rotation guy due to his lack of mobility and shot-making ability. Good to have for the matchups where Williams third and Horford get into foul trouble, though. Next up are the guards for the 2022-2023 Boston Celtics. By far, the biggest acquisition of the offseason for them was getting Malcolm Brogdon via trade. Brogdon gives Boston a starting caliber guard that they most likely will have coming off the bench to lead their second unit. That is huge for a team who last year had an extremely short lineup in the playoffs in terms of players who could play big postseason minutes. Brogdon, who's a career 37% three-point shooter, will be able to get the most open looks in his career since his time in Milwaukee. Boston truly has that six-man now that can produce offense at a high clip, and it also won't be a slouch on the defensive end either. It'll be interesting to see the, the line of flexibility now at the guard spot, especially with returning guards Derek White and Peyton Pritchard. White has been a positive addition so far to the team. He brought an additional, play, additional playmaker to the team and a plus-size guard, which adds to the team's defensive ability. I think he can be relied on for double-digit scoring and a few assists, as well as a steal per game. Plus, when he's hot from three, it can really turn the tide of a game or even a series. Pritchard will probably be the last guard in the main rotation with the addition of Brogdon. Pritchard has always been undersized, and defensively, he'd quite frankly get abused. We saw that multiple times, especially in the finals. When he's not hitting from three-point range, he's basically a non-factor on the court. I expect him to potentially be put in a trade at some point if the Celtics want to maybe pick up a veteran player for the bench. Finally, there's rookie J.D. Davidson, who impressed me a lot during Summer League. I hope he gets minutes early on during the year and G League time too, because with reps, he can definitely be a type of guy that will be very effective and even become a starting level guard with his playmaking, shot making, and defensive abilities. Finally, let's get into the wings for the Boston Celtics, starting with Grant Williams. His improvement last year from being just a just a tweener three to four to now being a four to five in the mold of a PJ Tucker was a revelation for the Celtics. Having another switchable forward who can also shoot the three ball at a high clip was crucial in their run to the finals. Without him, they wouldn't have even made it past second round in the playoffs. That Milwaukee series, that was a grueling slugfest throughout. But Williams seven three pointers along with twenty seven points to put Boston in a driver's seat, that got them a ticket to the Eastern Conference Finals. Next is a new addition via free agency, Danilo Gallinari. Now, he's he's gotten injured. We're we're not too sure the timetable for his return. It can be as short as, well, I believe, like four to six months, maybe even longer. But I still want to mention in the 6'10 forward, he's a career 16-point-per-game scorer and just barely under 40% from three-point range. He, he would have been a key addition to this Boston bench unit, especially considering they were looking for, for bench production in the postseason last year and just someone to replace Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, stopping them from playing such an exorbitant amount of minutes. So he definitely will be missed. I think that we can see maybe a guy like Carmelo Anthony coming from free agency to fill that role. Which they play very similar games. They work in very similar spots. Them The mid-post, they can pick and pop from three, spot up in the corner. They do a lot of things very similarly. 
Carmelo Anthony would be a great addition to fill the void until Daniil comes back. Having said that, a guy like Danilo Gallinari, as well as Carmelo Anthony, defensively they're not as talented, but with all the other defenders on the roster to make up for it, they, they would be just fine to simply just score all season. Lastly are two guys who will be towards the back of the bench, Sam Hauser and Mufondo Cabangeli. I might have butchered that name. But Hauser is a marksman from deep at around 44% from three, and Cabangeli is more of an energy guy than anything else. They don't hurt to have on the roster, but aren't likely to make any huge contributions. Finally, we are here at the standings prediction. Points bet. NBC's official sports betting partner has the Boston Celtics at 55 and a half wins this season. Well, that is better than last season, which makes sense due to the turnaround that they had. They went to the finals. I think Boston will be over that mark. I see Boston as being a 60 plus win team due to them adding so much more talent to the roster, as well as them being hungry to get back to the championship after losing a series that they quite literally threw away with all those turnovers. I see them being the top seed in the NBA and having home court advantage throughout the playoffs. If there is any impediment to the success, it will come through the Milwaukee Bucks in the East, who had a retooling type of offseason and will certainly be in the championship conversation this year. However, I believe that Boston will get it done and as a result will be the 2023 NBA champions. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the From Downtown podcast this week. I hope that now that I have a laptop and we have everything settled, I'll be able to get you guys more consistent episodes. That's the goal. Next up, we have the Brooklyn Nets as a team that will see what's next. What are they going to do this season? One of the most tumultuous offseason that most teams have ever had. They had so much things going down with Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving, where's Ben Simmons? What's going to happen? Is he going to be injured? Is he going to play? The free agent signings, we're going to get into all that and more next time on the From Downtown Podcast. I'm your host, Dahani Joseph, and until then, take care. Mm-hmm.